Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, for the truth of that song, that the wounds of Jesus Christ our Lord indeed satisfy the wrath of God that our sin deserved. The punishment of our sin was rolled on our Savior, who became sin for us and was slaughtered and crucified on that tree so that we might go free, so that our salvation might be purchased by the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. I pray that you would give us grace to behold the Lamb of God today in the pages of Scripture. I pray that you would return us to to the overflowing joy of our salvation as we contemplate the glories of the Gospel this morning. I pray that you would give us grace to announce, behold, the Lamb of God through our lives and through our words and through our deeds to others that the message of Jesus Christ, slain for sinners, risen and ascended, now ruling at the right hand of the Father, would be readily available through your people, championing, singing, praising, and speaking the glories of Christ. I pray, Lord, now as we set our minds and our hearts upon the things in your word, that the Spirit might govern the delivery and the hearing of this word, to awaken to our attention with fresh understanding and invigorated affections, Lord, the glory that you deserve through your people upon the knowledge of Christ, our Savior, slain and risen for us. And thank you, Lord, for this moment, these moments that we have together. May you bless and multiply them to our soul's satisfaction and to your glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. This morning I would invite you to turn in your scriptures to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verses 19 through 47 will be our primary text this morning under a title, Authority Substantiated. The authority of Jesus Christ is substantiated in His own words in John chapter 5 verses 19 through 47. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Let me give you a brief explanation while you're finding your place in the Scriptures. As we were speaking last week, In Matthew 22, towards the end of the chapter, when Jesus asks a leading question of the Pharisees, Who do you say that I am? Or, more specifically in that passage, What do you think about the Christ? It occurred to me that implicit in his question was an answer to a prior question in Matthew 21, where the leaders, in this case the scribes and the elders, had asked him, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? The answer to that question, by what authority do you do these things, is directly answered in John chapter 5. So this is a parallel text that attends our Matthew 21 through 22 series, and I wanted to spend some time there this morning. So with your Bible open to John 5, stand with me if you would this morning, and let us read these verses together. Follow me as I declare God's holy and infallible word, John 5. 19 and following. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his form you have never seen, and his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, verse 47, For if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. Turn back with me just for a point of reference to Matthew chapter 21, if you would. This morning, I couldn't resist spending some time in John chapter 5. Last week, as a cross-reference, we took note of several of the verses that I read today, especially with respect to the Son of Man. And the association of the Son of Man, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, and Jesus calling and delegated authority from the Father to judge. It struck me so, so profoundly as I was rereading our text from last week and studying for this week's text in Matthew uh, 23, or what was going to be this week's text in Matthew 23, that it might do us well to spend a little bit more time in John 5. Because the answer to the question in Matthew 21 is ringing so clear in the words of Christ. Leading us back briefly to Matthew 21, 
I want to remind you of a question that sparked the cross-examination and the rest of the exchange all the way through the end of Matthew 22. It says in verse 23 of Matthew 21, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, and here's their question, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This original question brought to Jesus in Matthew 21 with respect to his authority I submit to you triggers an exchange running all the way through chapter 22. The question asked by the chief priests and elders, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave it to you? In this chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus does not answer this question directly. Instead, he turns the tables on them and the cross-examination attempts are deftly uh, thrown back on their face and then they have to wear, that is the religious leaders, the shoe on the other foot. As Jesus says to them, as we continue to read, he asks them a question, verse 25 in Matthew 21, the baptism of John, where did it come from, heaven or man? They don't have an answer to this because they know either way they are incriminating themselves. They said, we do not know in verse 27. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So in the context of Matthew 21 and 22, Jesus does not directly answer the question where his authority comes from who ha- or who has given it to him. However, by the end of chapter 22, Jesus alludes to the answer to that question when he asks the Pharisees another question. And we have this in our last week's text in verse 42 of chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus leaves the question hanging there. He asked them again, verse 45, a little more pointedly still, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, he leaves them tongue-tied. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It strikes me that the answer to that question all the way back in 21 was inferred in Jesus' question in Matthew 22, 42 through 43. The inference of Jesus' query, that is, touches on all three major points of our message today from John 5. On this occasion, in fact, in John 5, our major text this morning, in John's Gospel, Jesus gives a direct and thorough answer to the scribes and elders' original question. Here in John 5, think back to our text we just read, our primary one this morning, in no uncertain terms, Jesus reveals His standing and power to both declare and to execute the woes and judgments of the rest of Matthew, especially chapters 23 through 25. Like the reference in Psalm 110 and Matthew 22 in passing, here in John 5, the nature of the Godhead is explicitly elucidated. It's explained, it's revealed to them in clear and and amazing terms, along with the office of the Son of Man as judge of all history and all living creatures, alongside the prophetic context of the Old Testament Scriptures. Today's message will serve then to demonstrate the symphonic harmony of the Gospels. Up to this point in our Matthew study, we've been sort of Matthew-centric. We've looked at Matthew uh, in terms of the context of Matthew. This morning I wanted to 
take a brief excursus, that is a little aside to clarify, into the Gospel of John, just to show and to remind us the amazing harmony between the accounts of Jesus' ministry. When you uh, see John, the book of John, lined up with the book of Matthew, the dovetail, if you will, fits perfectly together. And this is one of those moments of pairing where the parallel texts serve to illuminate one another, where Matthew is more bold and clear and brilliant in its uh, propositional truth when compared to John 5. And so is John 5 more powerful, clear, and emphatic when when paired with Matthew chapter 5. These passages and truths that we'll talk about today, they demonstrate to us in Christ's own expounding and own proclamation, the essence of Himself and His work. Nothing is more mysterious and nothing is more, more, more powerful. And therefore, there's no one better equipped to explain it to us than Jesus Christ, God incarnate in His own words Himself. And this, John chapter 5, 19-47, is one of those passages. And finally, by way of introduction and application, it seems that these passages and truths that we're about to get into with a little more depth this morning, are too easily lost in the hustle and bustle of the holidays. We claim to be celebrating Christmas culturally around this time of year, but if we look closely at what really governs our motives and what commands our attention, we may find that we are in fact celebrating something besides the incarnation entirely. After all, it seems that the Jesus that is marketed on Christmas cards and candy and all of the presents and the like is really a market, consumer market-driven holiday-type Jesus that bears little resemblance to the truth that we see in Scripture. When's the last time you read a Christmas card that declared Jesus was the Son of Man who would judge the living and the dead with a sword of division to divide between the wheat and the chaff and to send the chaff into the unquenchable burning fires of perdition? Well, in fact, in Isaiah 9, in the prophecies that we treasure so much about one who would be born with the government on his shoulders of a virgin, it also declares in verses prior to that that there would be boots uh, like those of battle that would march forward so that the oppositional force of the kingdom of God would declare that judgment has come to his enemies, not just salvation to the lost. And so we see a full-orb picture of Jesus Christ, and it refreshes us and brings our attention back to the truth as we study it today. Today, when we are tempted to lose our sight and to get easily distracted, we need only to turn to the Scriptures to get reoriented. And thus, we have a corrective today, today, this morning, in John chapter 5 and the accompanying text. And so let me give you a heading today for the bulk of our message. Jesus substantiates His authority by appealing to three things. Jesus substantiates His authority by appealing to the Godhead in covenant or the Godhead in relationship. Again, the Trinity is foremost and featured and the relationship and agreement between the persons of the Godhead is in view in John chapter 5. We touched on this last week by implication as Jesus associates Psalm 110 with His own person and work. But it's expounded in great detail in John 5 verses 19 through 24. Secondly, Jesus in substantiating His own authority, He appeals to timeless sovereignty. A phrase I've chosen to use that describes in context 
God, Jesus Christ, the Godhead as sovereign over history, over all things. And thirdly this morning, and finally, major point, Jesus substantiates his authority. He demonstrates, that is to say, the authority that he does the things that he does in the Gospels and who gave it to him by an appeal to multiple witnesses. He appeals to several witnesses in verses 30 through 47 that establish the ground or substantiates his authority. So let us go through our text this morning and receive from the Scriptures the substance and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, His purpose and His work, His essence, His character, what He has accomplished in redemption and in the incarnation. First of all, Jesus substantiates His authority by appealing to the Godhead in covenant or to the work of redemption, or we could say to the covenant of redemption. In theology, the covenant of redemption is a term we often see in systematic books to describe the unique plan that the Father and the Son and the Spirit agreed to from eternity past to accomplish in time the necessary work for our salvation. When we see the covenant of redemption in Scripture expounded, it reads exactly like this in John 5:19. As Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise." So you see, first of all, in the Godhead, there is a unity of purpose. The Father and the Son in this verse, verse 19, are unified in what they propose to do. Nothing that the Father plans does the Son fail to accomplish. And nothing that the Son conceives and wills to do has not first been conceived by the Father. They're perfectly one in this regard. A perfect picture in the Trinity of unity and diversity, that is to say. In verse 20, we have the ground of their relationship for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The ground of perfect unity, communion, and relationship is thus exemplified in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Why is this displayed for us in the Godhead? Why is this mystery about the triune nature, the character of Almighty God revealed to us? The answer to that question is also in the last phrase of verse 20, so that you may marvel. You cannot fully comprehend, but there is enough to behold in the Scriptures for you to be awestruck with amazement to worship. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And you see again the unity and purpose. As we see this absolute unified plan to achieve redemption for the elect, laid out for us in Jesus' own words, we are reminded of our worship text today. There are those who wanted to see the Father, who wanted to have a deeper understanding among His hungry disciples, who are at this point shrouded somewhat in their view. And Jesus consoled them by saying in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He goes on to say the promise of eternal life, describing it in terms of a habitation, rooms prepared, in which they can soon dwell. Jesus says, and speaking as to the way of salvation and eternal life, I am the way, the famous verse 
and a confession of every true Christian. Verse 6, again John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, not, or you do know him and have seen him. Philip asks a question that has already been answered in verse 8. Not clearly seen yet. He said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Listen to verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We are reminded then of the purpose of Jesus' incarnation in part was to reveal to us the nature and character of God. There is another term to help us explain these glorious truths called condescension. There is also a term called incomprehensibility. The only way that we can connect with an incomprehensible God, that is a God too glorious to be be, uh, comprehended or understood with our feeble fallen minds, The only way that we can have knowledge about Him is if He condescends to us. That is, comes down to our level, makes Himself known, interrupts our sphere of reality with a true message of Him, His essence, His character, and His glory. This happened in the Incarnation. His disciples, Jesus Christ's disciples, saw God in flesh appearing. Emmanuel. He was there to exegete, if you will, to declare, to reveal the Father. People need not say any longer if the Spirit had used that very means to awaken their heart to the knowledge of truth. I wonder what the Father is like. I wish I could know Him. That shadowy knowledge of distance between us and the Almighty God who dwells in unapproachable light was erased in Jesus Christ. Through Him, the way, the truth, and the life, true knowledge of the Father was attainable to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, that when they heard Christ and saw Christ, they heard and saw the Father. Jesus Christ came in part to reveal the Father to us In this world, in this response, and this actually was a response to the controversy that was stirred up in this chapter, John uh, chapter 5, which had preceded this moment. And as we look at what Jesus was doing and the authority that he was wielding, that we see why people were so irate and misunderstanding. Jesus was in his works in part abrogating Sabbath laws. We see this also in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, 6 through 8, where he says so clearly, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater, indeed, the Son of Man, God in flesh appearing, Emmanuel, God with us, was here. Something greater than the temple, the Son of Man had arrived, and he, in Jesus' own words, indeed, was Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the something greater, Jesus Christ, was a revelation in part of the Father, Prior to this, the closest thing that you could get to communion with Christ was through the temple order. And those who followed Christ and those who were curious of His teaching were shocked and appalled at first when He said He would destroy that temple. 
They were shocked and amazed when that carefully laid out, programmed liturgy and worship of Sabbath keeping was abrogated in its works on that holy day. Why? Because they were concerned that their one faint attachment, that one shadowy, typological uh, metaphor of what God was like would somehow be lost. But Jesus was not here to do away with those things. He was here to fulfill them in glory. That which had been just a shadowy picture was now revealed in fullness. So those who looked on Christ looked upon the Father. He made God the Father accessible more than any prior priest, any prior order, any ceremonial law could ever hope to accomplish. This was testimony to His authority. The one who could act in perfect unity with the purpose of God the Father was substantially demonstrating His authority when He did exactly that. Secondly, under Godhead in covenant, we find specified roles. We find that to Jesus Christ has been delegated or given a specific call. We see this in verses 20 through 22 again in John 5. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. And so we see here that works prepared by God in His perfect plan, God the Father, were given to Christ to perform and to reveal. Don't you wish you could have been a fly on the wall in the annals of prehistory, if you will, in the halls of glory where the great conversations of the Trinity were held? There's a few moments I've eavesdropping on the Trinity in the past where we hear in Jesus' prayers, we listen in to the conversation between God the Father and God the Son. There is no more glorious communication in all history or all the earth that we could ever set our mind upon than the glorious communication, love, communion that passes between the Father and the Son. And this happened in his, before time even began as the Father planned and the Son purposed to accomplish the works that His Father prepared for Him to reveal in time to exegete the Father to us. These works were granted to Christ to perform, to reveal the glory of God. So that we may marvel, our text says today. We're reminded in the text of John, in the context that is of chapter 2 verse 11, the explanation for why Jesus performs His first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. This was the first of His signs we read in the text. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. In Jesus' works such as this, He was manifesting His glory, which was the glory of the Father. And so we see unveiling in His work through His ministry the power of God Almighty through a real man in real time, condescending to us to show us the glories of what we could otherwise never understand. Secondly, specified roles. It is granted unto Christ the power of resurrection. Verse 21, again in John 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom whom He will. Again, it goes on in verse 22 
a delegated role of Christ. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So there are two more things, the first being resurrection, that are granted unto Christ. In theology, the term is economic trinity. How things happen in salvation are specific to the members of the Godhead. It is God the Father who plans and purposes, ultimately speaking. It is God the Son who purchases and and performs in time that plan. Purchasing, that is, our salvation. Fulfilling the necessary conditions of reconciliation with the Father. It is the Holy Spirit and the economic role of the Trinity that is the process whereby redemption is applied, where He takes that and makes it real, teaches us the truth and awakens our soul's understanding. These are some of what we see in the glorious revelation of Scripture. Why are they revealed? That we might marvel, that we might worship, that we might lift our hallelujahs heavenward at this glimpse, this sneak peek behind the curtain of the material world into the transcendent, powerful, glorious reality of the nature of God and the persons of the Godhead. This power of resurrection granted to Christ again is manifest in His works which God prepared for Him to accomplish. If you were to study the resurrections of Jesus Christ, one that would certainly be chief among them is in chapter 11 of the same book, book of John, and that's where Lazarus, by a word of Jesus Christ, is raised from the dead. This man, having already begun the process of decay, three days in the grave, reminding us of Jesus' own power to raise himself from the dead, was raised by the power delegated to Christ to lift from the grave that which had been dead and perished and unto newness of life. This, of course, is such a great manifestly amazing and comforting truth to us because we know from the revelation of Scripture that the greatest, most horrible death of all is spiritual death. The death that immediately followed the first and original sin and all who are born in sin following Adam and Eve's great transgression. But according to Ephesians 2, those who are lost and those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are resurrected to newness of life according to the power delegated to Jesus Christ to lift us from the miry clay and grave of our sin and to set us upon the rock Jesus Christ to create in us a clean and new heart to regenerate us, to render us born again. This is the power of the Godhead operative because of the covenant relationship and the specified roles between the persons And finally, under these roles, we have judgment that is delegated, the office of judge delegated to the Son. Verse 22, we see the distinction then in roles when it is revealed to us in Jesus' own words that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Later in the text, verse 27, it says, He has given Him authority, again to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. And as we see these specified roles, we are reminded again in Matthew 25 when Jesus declares that there is coming a time in in the future where the last chapter of history closes and it closes with the final judgment where all wrongs are righted, ultimate reckoning occurs, and He is there seated in His authority uh, uh, supervising and accomplishing that very task we see that this specified role is yet 
prophetically speaking of a time in history where the role of judge granted to the son will take place in time. This is a reality. This is part of our understanding or part and parcel to our understanding of the Godhead in relationship and in covenant. Finally, under Godhead and covenant, it is clear from the text that all members of the Trinity equally command our amazement and our worship. In verse 22, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Marvel at the Father. Marvel at the Son. Worship God the Father. Worship Jesus Christ, the Lord. This word marvel in the original language, thalmadzo, is similar to ekplaso that we found in our Matthew text of late. It includes some of the same connotations, in fact. To be awestruck, astonished, out of one's senses. To be laid bare and to be uh, dumbfounded at the reality of what is shown to us. That which was not seen before now dawns on us with surprising and unpredictable glory. This is the kind of response that an understanding of the Godhead and covenant uh, solicits. And that response ought to be directed to all members of the Trinity. Verse 23 and 24, The Father judges no one, or 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Those who have passed from death to life are of a different sort. They are wired to honor the Father and to honor the Son. Again, in the original language, timao, this word honor, as we get to the core of the, of the uh, word and, and its essence and meaning, to assign value as it reflects the personal esteem attached to it by the beholder, a definition from a source called Word Help Studies. Again, what does it mean to honor the Father, to honor Christ? It is for us to assign value to Him as it reflects our personal esteem attached to what we behold in Christ. It begs the question, how much value do we attach to the Lord Jesus Christ? He truly commands our attention, our worship, and the utmost of our praise and passions. Secondly, this morning, major point, Jesus substantiates His authority by appealing to timeless sovereignty. When I say timeless sovereignty, I mean that all events and everything is under the control and the superintendence of, God, of the Godhead. All authority and is given to Christ, we see in the Scriptures. And this authority circumscribes all creaturely experience. It encompasses, it overarches all material reality. It indeed shapes and directs and writes the story of all history and time itself. Indeed, the timeless sovereignty of God reminds us that history is not, it is not an impersonal, indefinite string of cause and effects and effect relationships. No, in fact, time itself has an author. Listen to the implications of our text this morning, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Again, you recognize that, the, that history is shaped by the author of time. An hour is coming. There is a moment of exact and precise prediction and powerful revelation or an, and powerful enactment that will arrive at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, according to God's predestined plan, where the voice of the Son of God will go forth and all who are dead will hear it and will rise. It says again, speaking to the relationship of time and its dependence, time is contingent on God, that is to say in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. An hour is coming, even now is here, an hour is coming. These phrases remind us that God is the author of time. This time that we experience right now and the events that happen in the future. I would remind you in passing, in Hebrews chapter 4, that the shape and the structure, the personal directed nature of history itself is a theme that we are to remember and not to forget. It is the pagans who think of this world as a cyclical, undirected, uh, chaotic, uh, just catalog of certain events, as if you shook up a bunch of atoms in a giant uh, cosmologically-sized test tube and just let them bounce around and gradually lose their energy. In Hebrews chapter 4, which we've covered in recent messages, there's a commandment to look to or there's instruction to realize the meaning of the Sabbath all throughout history. The author reminds us that in six days the world was created and on the seventh it was complete and God rested. This is a picture of God's sovereign power to superintend, to providentially order and to dictate from His position of authority and creativity all events for all time. There was a Sabbath that was ordained for people to follow in the wilderness. This was a picture of what was to come, an expectation of Jesus Christ who would bring true rest from our labors. There is a Sabbath, Hebrews 4 says, that yet remains for us where the, where the wilderness toil of our suffering in this life will give way to ultimate glory where no more sorrow and sin attends us anymore. Temptation and pain give way to glorious uh, worship and perfect communion with God Almighty eternally. So when we celebrate the Sabbath, as you are doing with me this day, it is a reminder that God is the author of time. Pause one day a week and remember when you come and fellowship and worship the Lord and set aside your daily schedule. Remember that God set aside His work, that history has a point of crescendo, and ultimate fulfillment in the future. And this life is not a chaotic event of just navigating circumstances as they hit you in the face, but it is planned by Almighty God. We need this so in our time. We tune into the news, and it is nothing but a catalog and a chronicle of the hopeless despair of pagans who see us slaves to terrorism over here and the economy over there. And it can 
really beat us down. We can think of ourselves as nothing but little molecules in a chaotic mess of undirected circumstances. This is not the case. We are living in a carefully planned particular time in history where every sin of every wicked man will be used for the glory of God and will turn out for the good of those who are His called according to His purpose. And we acknowledge this when we worship the Lord every Sabbath. Sabbath keeping is an expression of faith in the timeless sovereignty of God, His ordering of all history, our lives, and our future. The timeless sovereignty of God is also seen in His transcending death itself. All men will, uh, it's appointed as the scriptures say, to die, then after that the judgment. Death seems inevitable, and it certainly is in one sense. But death is not an inevitable end for one who has power to transcend it. What does the word transcend mean? To rise above, to go beyond the limits, to triumph over the negative and restrictive aspects, to be prior to, beyond and above, Webster's tells us. It's a great word to describe the power of Jesus Christ over death itself. As we see in our text that an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for he, uh, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, in other words, do not be surprised, do not be caught unawares, have a secure and sure expectation that all in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Why? Because God, who is life, the font of life Himself, and the author of life transcends death, and the last enemy is under Christ's foot, now and will be then, and those who are dead and have passed away will come out, and those who have done good, they will be resurrected unto life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This prophecy and this revelation showing us that Jesus Christ is sovereign. He transcends death itself. On your own time in Matthew 27, at the moment of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant's greatest apparent weakness, when he is suffering the death on the cross, the shameful execution by wicked sinners. At this moment of his greatest weakness, his authority is nonetheless evident. One of the ways we see his authority evident in Matthew 27 is in verse 52, where upon his death, graves are opened. And there are those who had long before fallen asleep. They wake up and they walk around the city and appear to many. Even in his death, Christ's authority is substantiated. Perhaps when we are there, we'll go through more ways his authority is substantiated and evident even in his most apparent weakness, or his greatest apparent weakness. This shows us, this text and these verses in John 5, that Jesus is Lord over the grave. His timeless sovereignty is also seen in that he is the eternal judge. It is uh, his office as the Son of Man, in fact, that is the basis of his authority to judge. Listen again, verse 27, and he has given him, that is God the Father has given Christ, the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
That should recall to your attention our lengthy studies of late of Psalm 110 and, the, and Daniel 7, and the Son of Man and who He was. The Son of Man was not, as, a, as we said, a self-deprecating term meant to associate Christ with merely humanity. Instead, the Son of Man was a term that, that associated Him with the authority to execute judgment, as we see in Psalm 110 and see in Daniel 7. Do not marvel at this. Jesus Christ has prophesied it. He even declared it to his enemies, as you recall in Mark 14, when he said, you will see the Son of Man seated in the heavenly places, and he will come in judgment, as we see in the context, on the clouds. And this, again, is the vision that Stephen sees just before he's stoned. He sees Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as judge, standing at the right hand of the Father. And the unbelievers irate, uh, calling him a blasphemer, blasphemer, proceed to stone him, for this admonition, for this acknowledgement of the truth. Jesus Christ, in His timeless sovereignty, is the author of time. He transcends death, and He is the eternal judge. Finally, this morning, Jesus substantiates His authority by appealing to witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15, by the word of God through His servant Moses, Moses, the great servant leader of God's people, penned the law of God. And among the standards of jurisprudence were this, that any claim, any uh, accusation must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is certainly in view when Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. So again, do you remember the question all the way back to Matthew 21? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? If this was a court trial, if Jesus was set before the bar of the elders and the scribes, and if it was a defense that he would make according to biblical standards of jurisprudence, he would appeal to witnesses other than himself. Could he summon two or three that would substantiate his authority to which he could appeal? Yes. There is another who bears, verse 32, witness about me. So Jesus is summoning his witnesses. He is substantiating his authority by appealing to one, John the Baptist. He says again, verse 32, And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Verse 33, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You see John, the Elijah who went before, Jesus said in Matthew, If you can accept it, if you have ears to hear, he is the Elijah prophesied in Malachi that would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, verse 34, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Speaking again of John, verse 35, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So while John is a legitimate witness, he is not the greatest witness. He nevertheless joins in the line of the summons of witnesses, and they are multiple. And the second one we see, perhaps we can combine two, is the Father, God the Father Himself. The multiple witnesses that substantiate the authority of Christ include John the Baptist and now God Almighty the Father. For the works, it says in verse 36, that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me. That the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has Himself born Witness about me. God the Father Himself, 
was bearing witness to Jesus Christ through the works that he had given him to do. And I submit to you also that that parallel texts and occasions in the gospel would be his baptism. A few years ago, I delivered to you a message called Heaven's Loudspeaker, where we chronicled a few moments in the gospels where the audible voice of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, shouts from the heavenlies an attestation to the authenticity of his Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This was the witness of the Father, joining the two or three witnesses and more that substantiated the authority of Christ. It happened at his baptism. It happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. It happened through the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in this text, verse 37, His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. I submit to you, this speaks more to the blindness of those to whom He is speaking than it does the fact that God has spoken. God has spoken, and the wicked man suppresses it in unrighteousness. Yet the witness and the testimony to the authenticity of Jesus Christ is inescapable. It preceded him in the testimony of John. It is written and preserved sovereignly, providentially, through history in these scriptures. The most popular book, the most widely distributed, the most ubiquitously available book in all history testifies to Almighty God. And we have these words right here. And that is sufficient to condemn anyone who would stop their ears and close their eyes by their own force of will. When Jesus Christ has been attested to us by His works, by John the Baptist, by God the Father Himself, and if that weren't enough, by the Holy Scriptures that preceded Him. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. You hear it, don't you? He's summoning yet another witness, the Scriptures that have preceded Him. There's a brief aside where he says, I do not receive glory from people. And that doesn't mean Jesus Christ doesn't receive worship from people. What it means is Jesus Christ does not solicit compliments from itching, fallen ears. That's what the hypocrites did. That's what the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, and the Sadducees did. They just gave themselves attaboys and slaps on the back. They gave themselves awards like Hollywood does at the Oscars. They award themselves, oh, we are so great because we say we are so great. Jesus Christ is not self-serving in this way. God the Father attests to him, and his glory is attested to by multiple witnesses. There is more than enough, infinitely more than enough, I submit to you, to incriminate anyone who denies the evidence of his manifest glory through the pages of Scripture. In this example, joining the ones that went before He says in verse 46 or verse 44, How can you believe when you ask, when you receive glory from one another, but do not not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, you will not accept God the Father as a witness. You'll accept your buddies, other Pharisees, and the wisdom of man, but you won't accept God the Father whose voice testified from heaven, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, the one who raised the dead, walks on water, feeds like manna in the wilderness, thousands with bread by his spoken word. You won't listen to him. What kind of judgment is deserving on such a generation that is so willfully blind? Do not think that I accuse you to the Father, verse 45. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And yet another witness is summoned, the preceding scriptures. We see this all through the text. 
Even in the next chapter, John chapter 6, the nature of Christ's very miracles show how Moses wrote of Christ. Just as Moses, through his office and prayers to God, was used to carry and to guide his people through the exodus to the promised land, and they were supplied along the way with bread in the wilderness, so Jesus supplied thousands with bread in the wilderness. Just as they were granted safe passage through the Red Sea on dry land, so the power over the waves of the sea was demonstrated in the next chapter when Jesus walks on the water. Jesus says very clearly, I am the bread of life. You must partake of me in order to be sustained in the wilderness of this life. To be set free from the judgment of your sin, you must partake of me. And this was a hard saying for many. They did not understand. But for those whose eyes were open, like the two on the road to Emmaus, they understood as the Spirit gave them understanding, according to Luke 24, Jesus, as he began with the law and the prophets, showed how everyone spoke of him. This happened through the course of Jesus' ministry, compounding the substantiation of his authority by multiple witnesses. In closing of our message this morning, I have just breezed over and glanced over the most important verse in this entire text. To that verse, I would like to return and close this morning. This is the gospel and one of those glorious, compact nutshells that only Spirit-inspired Scripture could deliver. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in a nutshell, this is my message this morning. The Godhead and covenant, timeless sovereignty, multiple witnesses are all referenced here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears, whoever listens to the witness of Scripture, John the Baptist, God the Father, Jesus works, whoever hears my word, the revelation of the truth, and believes Him who sent me, that is, God the Father, the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity, commissioning Jesus Christ to be the Savior of mankind, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is, He has joined on the side of redemption with the One who has timeless sovereignty, who is the author of life and the Savior from death, the One who has transcended it by His own blood and has purchased salvation for all who simply believe. Do you believe this day? If you do, truly, truly, certainly, certainly, beyond a shadow of doubt, by the authoritatively substantiated word of Christ, you have sweet and enduring salvation. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the glorious promises of Scripture. We reject and spew out in all its lukewarm detestability, the banality and the trivial things of this life as we set our minds to behold the glories of our God revealed in Scripture. We testify that nothing compares to the witnesses that line up through the pages of history and Scripture to the glory of Almighty God. If our affections have been led astray by the trappings of this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as I know mine have been this week, we simply confess it as sin and lay ourselves bare once again before Jesus Christ. 
And we set ourselves to hear your word this day as you give us power to hear it. We believe you. Um, We believe the one that sent you, dear Jesus. We thank you that in this is the assurance that we have passed from death unto life. Lord, I pray for the reality of these gospel truths to be so precious to us that they would command our attention and our worship, that we may marvel with those, Lord, whose eyes were opened to the power and glory of the incarnation so long ago, that even this day, though we are removed by years, that we would not be removed in our passions as we celebrate the finished work of Christ and look forward to transcending death and to join Him ruling and reigning and worshiping and communing forever without end. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.